I want to start with few words to set the stage for what's coming up next. And I want to ask you to please stick around till the end of the episode, because if you don't mind, I have a small favor to ask. My new episode contains language that some may find strong from a conservative standpoint. You may not want to listen when with children, and please consider whether the content is suitable for your young adults or teenagers if they are with you. Otherwise, feel free to enjoy it on your own and immerse yourself in moments of vibrant youth. I want to give you some context for this true story. It takes place during the tumultuous period of war, in those rare moments of ceasefire and tranquility. Additionally, some of the events I'll be sharing unfold after the war has come to an end. With respect to others, I have changed the names in the story to protect each one's identity. Welcome to the Life Affairs Podcast. This is a place where we share life experiences and the many lessons learned by just living. Join me to immerse ourselves and take a closer look at the stories that shaped and defined us. Just remember, there's no judgment and a lot of understanding on today's episode of the Life Affairs Podcast. At 11 a.m. in the morning in 1985, I walk on my way to my friend's house. I feel the gentle warmth of a spring day. At each step of the way, I see the streets of my neighborhood in Ashrafiye come alive. I even start to hear and feel my stomach rumbling to the delicious fragrances and hints of Lebanese cuisine coming out of the open kitchen windows of the tightly packed apartment buildings on either side of the street. Wisps of aromatic smoke like a genie's flames wave their way into the atmosphere and I think to myself, soon I will be home for lunch. As the sun-warm rays bestow a gentle caress upon the cobbled streets and the facades of the modest neighborhood buildings that surround me, here and there I notice sun curtains partially closed on a few balconies. With fabrics of various colors and shapes, I couldn't help but contemplate how chaotic it is to gaze at all these curtains. Yet, how mysterious it feels to speculate on the types of people living behind each pattern and how their life preferences are reflected in these sun curtains. Nature itself joins me on this walk in the celebration of spring with jasmine and cyclamen adorning the wrought iron balconies, flaunting their vivacious fuchsia and white blossoms. On the sidewalks, I look at a quaint setup of three to four chairs and a coffee table, where retired male neighbors and a few spirited youngsters engage in games of backgammon, all the while while sipping on a robust Lebanese coffee. The only interruption to the inviting aroma is the occasional waft of cigarette smoke, suspended like traces of nostalgia between the fingers of the players. And there, amidst this tapestry of sensations, I stroll through the neighborhood, heading to my best friend's Rana's house. The path is an upward slope, challenging but invigorating. Once I conquer the ascent, 
anticipation carries me effortlessly down the opposite descent, guiding me straight to Rana's front door. This specific day is engraved in my memory because the events that follow will unfold in front of my eyes a bit by bit. What is it like to become a woman in the Christian society of the Middle East? As usual, Rana and I, we meet every morning on weekends and during school days off. It is second nature for me to head to her place, where we then venture outside for a leisurely walk toward her father's grocery shop. Rana is not only stunning, but she's also the daughter of Ammo Fuad, the proprietor of the most unique grocery shop in the male area of Ashrafiye in Beirut. People from all walks of life, both men and women, frequent Uncle Fuad's shop to purchase the finest fruits and vegetables available. Amo Fuad is incredibly sharp-minded, never needing a calculator. Customers would pile bags of produce in front of him, and he expertly weighed them, deftly pulling a pen from behind his ear to jot down prices on a scrap of paper, before moving on to the next bag. In the blink of an eye, he calculates the final bill, earning a reputation as a mathematical genius. But Amo Fuad's charm doesn't end with his math skills. He has a unique talent for making each customer feel like they are his most cherished and important patrons. I can still vividly recall the vibrant atmosphere emanating from his shop and spilling onto the surrounding street creating an ambiance of vitality and camaraderie. His store is always our first destination. While strolling towards her house, little I know that this morning's visit to Rana is going to alter our friendship forever. as the news she shares with me marks the end of our childhood bond. I vividly recall Rana's striking beauty. Her large, honey-colored eyes possessed a piercing intensity. Her long, tousled, natural blonde hair invoked images of a youthful Brigitte Bardot. And her full, luscious pink lips curves into a smile, revealing her perfect white teeth. Even at just 11 years old, Rana has the ability to turn heads, and her mother seems keenly aware of this fact. As I will later discover, she has grand plans for her daughter. Arriving at her doorstep, I ring the bell, and there she stands in the doorway, wearing a broad smile that adorns her cheeks like two fluffy pink cotton candies. Behind her, a few other women, presumably relatives to her mother. All women look very happy. They drink their coffee while I overhear them plan shopping trips. They are celebrating something of immense importance, yet I don't know what it is. Rana takes my hand, closes the door behind us, and with unbridled excitement in her voice, she declares, Rula ejitne! Rula, I have my period. I'm a woman now. This is the day I've been waiting for. I am utterly perplexed by this revelation. 
trying to remember if she ever mentioned that she is eagerly anticipating her menstruation day. I remain silent, unable to find the right words. If she is menstruating, means today she becomes a woman. What does this make me? We are both just 11 years old. She's a woman. I'm still a child. Her announcement leaves me deeply puzzled. I recall a queasy feeling churning in my stomach, accompanied by an inexplicable sense of envy. However, I cannot quite pinpoint what exactly I am envious of. I struggle to grasp the significance of Rana's declaration about becoming a woman. While I do understand that women with periods could eventually become mothers, I find myself perplexed by the grand celebration surrounding the occasion. I watch in silence, bewildered by the sight of these ladies, smiling, laughing, and seemingly indifferent to Rana and me. They are praising her mom for her grand plans. They are clearly offering unwavering support to her mother, who is evidently overjoyed by the news. Then, in a sudden twist, Rana drops another bombshell. Hey, I don't think I will go out for our usual walks. Me? Rana answers impatiently. Surely you don't understand, you are not a woman yet. According to my mom, this will ruin my reputation if I go out and hang out at the corner of the streets like common girls would. Me. Mom, naamil shigalat? We are just walking around in the neighborhood. Rana. This is exactly the problem. Shabib will look and flirt. My mom wants me to stay pure for my future husband. In the second, and before the word husband even finishes, I am stunned. Someone is pulling the rug from under me. She explains that as a woman, she has other things on her mind. While pronouncing her last sentence, she gently guides me to the front door. And I, still in disbelief of this entire situation, leave her house and take the opposite challenging walk towards my house. This time, I do not have a sense of the spring warmth around me. I'm not even hungry anymore. I arrive home and go straight away to my mom, who is, as usual, in the kitchen, washing the vegetables she just bought from Ammo Fuad grocery shop. I walk to my mom and tell her every single detail of the past hour. While speaking to her, I see myself letting my body heavily drop on the couch and wait for my mother to answer my confusion. Mama Despite that she is born in 1939 in Palestine and endured the humiliating life in refugees' camps in Lebanon, with too little access to schools, she barely finished seventh grade. And yet, she speaks stunning English and has an open mind shockingly belonging to a very advanced and liberal fictive generation. So then my mom says to me, she is still a child. 
Yet, she continues to share valuable information that hadn't crossed my 11-year-old mind. My mom confirms that Rana's mother is already searching for a husband for her daughter. She wants to marry her as soon as possible, before she starts growing up and becomes a troublesome teenager. She follows this with a typical Lebanese expression, Allah yistur alaya. Fast forward a few months later, I get my period. I know I should be happy as it signifies something important. However, deep down inside me, I'm scared because I have a feeling that nothing good will come out of this period. In my house, there is no grand celebration, just a casual mabruk from my mom and sisters. Little I know that this casual congratulation means a serious goodbye to my freedom. Having my period starts causing problems because now that I have it, my father decides there are few places I'm allowed to go to. As time goes by, he goes out of his way to ensure that I don't speak, look at, or spend time alone with boys. It will take me some time to grasp the impact of menstruation on a girl's life in Lebanon. All this while I'm pondering whether I'm living my freedom and exploring my sexuality in the wrong way. It doesn't take long to realize that this natural blessing is in fact a societal curse. My brother, who is three years older than me, comes and goes as he pleases. There's no one asking him where he's at, nor what time he will be back home. In my father's eyes, and the society we live in, he is a boy. In contrary to girls, a boy virginity is a shame. And a boy freedom and independence is earned on the day his testicles see the world when channeling out of his mother's vagina. My life took a dramatic turn when I started menstruating. Little I know that, on this day, my identity will feel like it belongs to everyone but me. My every move becomes a subject of intense scrutiny by the neighborhood. Men weigh my actions for signs of sexual appeal, while women assess my worth as a potential untouched daughter-in-law. The moment I realize my actions are tethered to my anatomy, I resolve to transform myself into a tomboy. I chop my hair short, shave it on both sides, and revamp my wardrobe with large t-shirts and baggy jeans. I become Roland, resolute in my pursuit of the freedom and independence that society grant to boys. I leave behind Rula. But my plan does not unfold as smoothly as I envision. My father, despite my appearance, still see me as Rula with a distinctive anatomy. After months of pretending to be free because of my resemblance to a boy, I face a bitter truth. I'm losing both battles. I look like a boy. No boys are approaching me. And they are reluctant to include me in their circle 
because I am not as free as they are. This revelation coincides with my growing passion for music and music videos. On national TV, Top of the Pops is the rage. And through its stage, I catch a glimpse of how girls in the Western world revel in their freedom. I know there is no turning back. I yearn to embrace my femininity and explore my own sexuality. While pop music isn't my preferred genre, female pop icons like Madonna, Cyndi Lauper, Kim Wilde, Tina Turner, Cher, and others serve as my inspiration for freedom. They take center stage, dress as they please, wear colorful hair, and their voices resonate in the ears of every boy and every girl. Back then, I believe in what I see. I am not aware that these Western women can face abuse, misogyny, and patriarchy. In my eyes, they epitomize freedom. Yet, it wasn't just pop stars. I also admire Margaret Thatcher, Indira Gandhi, and Golda Meir. While I don't know as much about them as I do about pop stars, seeing their faces on the news, knowing they were women leaders making significant decisions in a male-dominated world is fascinating me. I love them for their power. I love them for their independence, not realizing that they too could suffer abuse, misogyny, and patriarchy. My women pop stars and my women world leaders, they all menstruate just like me. These international figures serve as my guiding lights, propelling me toward the person I aspire to become. Even amidst the challenges posed by my menstruation, I'm steadfast in my resolved transition from a goodie to shoes into a serial liar. This is where my bubble of untruth begins, and my parents' dream of me becoming a wife might never come true. All while the smile on my face remain unchanged, and the teenage hormones in my body are crying out to be released. It takes me years to master the courage and determination to claim my freedom. I think I'm claiming it now, telling my story. Even as a teenager, with a strong opinion and a thirst for independence, I grant myself the liberty to embark on a journey of serial lies. I regard my body as sacred and precious, knowing it's private and deserving the utmost respect. I exercise control over it, provide it with what it needs. It's here that I begin to select my boyfriend carefully. I don't desire a husband, but I also refuse to tolerate mistreatment from a boyfriend just because he's intimate with me. Unfortunately, this is the norm for my generation in Lebanon. I yearn for a partner who recognizes that sexual equality is paramount for both boys and girls. And thus, the challenge unfolds. I'm not entirely convinced boyfriends is the right term for the chaps I date. 
It often feels like they're moonlighting as goody two shoes to appease their mothers. I'm not exactly the darling of my boyfriend's mom. You see, I'm a free spirit, and my lips have been kissed by more than just my mother. Some of these mothers go to great lengths to pretend I don't exist when I'm next to their sons. One memorable day, a boyfriend asked me to duck down in the front seat of the car so his mom wouldn't spot me. Of course, I don't oblige. Instead, I proudly flaunt my youth, my style and the cigarette dangling from my lips just to give her something to talk about. All of this is a bit of a facade because deep down, I am not quite sure where I am heading with this rebellion. In my heart, I know that my quest for freedom isn't exactly being embraced back at home. My middle sister, she's a bit obsessed with my vagina's whereabouts. It's as if she wants to know every step I take and every move I make. I distinctly recall one encounter with her. I'm in my 20s. She calls me. My Ericsson mobile phone vibrates. I'm at the summer apartment building owned by a boyfriend's father and his siblings. These apartments double as the family's summer house. And his parents are away at their winter house in the city. It's a common setup in Lebanon. We're tiptoeing around because we don't want anyone to know he's brought his girlfriend home while his parents are away. I am 22 and he's 23. So when my sister calls, I find myself whispering. She asks, I whisper back, I'm here with my friends. I'm trying to keep it low key here. But she's persistent. Wanting more details, she continues. What friends? Once again, I reply in a hushed tone. Even if I tell you, you don't know them. What do you want? She ignores my question, pressing on. Why is it so quiet where you are? At this point, I couldn't care less about why she's calling. And she probably forgot her initial reason for calling me. It's like... She's losing control over my vagina. The whole whispering thing makes her uneasy. She suspects I might be in bed with someone. And she's right, but there's no way I'm going to spill the beans to her. It's just mind-blowing how everyone else is so concerned about my privacy and what I do with my own body. I feel like I am a phantom in my neighborhood. Just a walk-in sexual organ that needs protecting at all costs. This telephone conversation with my sister happens in the winter of 1996. Though things that happens in the 80s are even more mind-blowing. In the 80s, a time of war and rampant sectarian divide among the people. A Christian girl is forbidden to marrying a Muslim boy and vice versa. The cruelty of war got so far that couples from the same religion but different political views are forbidden from marrying each other. Desperate 
to make their forbidden love happen, daring lovers agree that the boy kidnaps the girl. It's 100% consensual. They know, from cultural experience and historical events, this will force their parents to agree to their marriage. And also, what's assumed when a girl gets kidnapped, they assume they've had some hanky-panky going on. Her family will be mortified to take her back, and his family will have no choice but to embrace the idea of the marriage. It's like a twisted rom-com. Many girls from that generation can tell you the tales of how they happily got kidnapped and tied the knot with the love of their lives. Thinking back at it, I find this the height of romance. A little kidnapping and the ransom is wedding party. To hell, religious divide. To hell, political disagreements. When I see the look on the parents and the guest faces, ironically, they all are dancing happily. Everyone seems reassured. Finally, the non-version bride finds her groom and the honor of her vagina is protected forever. Finally, Allah satar alaya. Finally, he married her and covered up for the bride's non-virgin state. In those days, in the 80s and 90s, I discovered the twists and turns, the unconventional choices and the remarkable experiences that have shaped who I am today. On one day, shortly before I left Lebanon for the Netherlands, I crossed paths with Rana in our neighborhood. She appears weary, her children running amok on this bustling sidewalk. Her natural, tousled blonde hair is not shiny anymore. Her lips are dry with no shiny pink lipstick on them, and her gaze is empty. She smiles, expressing how content she is. And I smile back, proud of my serial lies pursuing my freedom. For decades that follow, I regard my life as a facade. But now I embrace and cherish every escapade every passionate encounter and every moment of pleasure. I realize I am deceiving society. But what significance does it hold in comparison to my happiness and my authenticity? Whose opinions matter when I'm fulfilled, enriched by experiences and filled with pleasure? In my eyes, my worth is equal to a boy worth. My escapades are as legit as the escapades of my fellow Lebanese boys. I lived my youth fully, knowing those days won't return. Better days may lie ahead. But the youth, the energy, and the passion are lessons to carry forward as I age. These are my truth, unapologetically lived even in times of deception. I truly embrace my freedom and glad to finally see my lies as my awesome truth. While my life has its share of rom-com moments, I ultimately did not become a traditional Lebanese daughter-in-law. Adding a twist to the plot, I've been through divorce, and as if that weren't enough, I'm now remarried. I can't even begin to imagine how this storyline would baffle my imaginative mother-in-law. Nevertheless, my marriage rom-com is a story worth sharing when the time is right.
I really appreciate you for sticking around and listening to my episode. If you liked it, could you do me a favor? Please give it a five-star rating and leave a quick review on your favorite podcast app. And if you could tell your podcast-loving friends about it, that would be awesome. I can't wait to catch you on the next episode. Thank you.